Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. If you work at a law firm, you probably encounter a lot of people with a title partner. But what exactly does that mean? The definition is more fluid than it used to be, with many partners that don't make the high-level decisions traditionally associated with the title. Today we'll be joined by senior reporter Andrew Strickler. He'll explain the important consequences of who's really a partner, particularly relating to the wave of gender bias suits filed by women at law firms. And later on, we'll end the show talking about Taylor Swift's efforts to shake off a lawsuit alleging she stole lyrics for some of her songs. I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. And Bill Donnie, who's back with us this week. Philly, Philly. Look at you. Alive and not in uh, police custody. I'm back, That's good. And victorious. Yes. It was good. It was grand, even. Do you have any scenes from the from the parade you'd like to share with us? Uh, I mean, a lot of just a lot of sort of wanton lawlessness. Um, <laughs> well, this is would, why I was worried about you. You would like I was standing on Broad Street and we we were underneath a a, a bus terminal, like a bus station mm-hmm. stop, and we thought like we're like ah oh, things have calmed down for a second. Like, okay, catch, catch your breath. Immediately, five or six people were on top of us, and like the roof of it started sagging down over us. <laughs> oh like, God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice, cool, cool. cool. That's good. No, it was great though. Everybody was like, everybody was just joyous. Um, yeah, yeah, it was great. Glad. Uh, the other reason we're glad you're back is because we did a we did a great show two weeks ago talking about all these big implications in the Uber Waymo trial, Silicon Valley. It's very ethos on yes. trial. <gasps> big questions at play. A multi billion dollar industry. We got. Wow. Yeah, guys, let's say cue up the prices right horn, Steve. Uh, what just, a, yeah, Bill, how do you feel about that? I mean, you talked all about it with us. We anticlimactic. Were so, yeah. yeah, we were so excited about that one. It's a bummer. Um, it's settled, by the way, in case you hadn't heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for uh, two hundred and forty-five million dollars. Yeah, yeah. cowards, so, cowards, the both of them. I, say. I mean, I talked to people. <clears throat> I wrote a story on Monday about it, and I talked to a couple people who were like. I don't know why it didn't settle earlier. Like the the, the one guy said to me, literally, to me like, too, yeah. like there's a reason why you don't see people like Travis Kalanick up on the stand talking about like incriminating text messages <laughs> that are sent to a guy because like most people would have the sense to settle that case earlier, right? Yeah. And if you're gonna settle anyway, you'd think you'd just want to avoid a lot of this, you know, bad press they've gotten, and, right? You know, all right. this stuff. That's so now out. there's, but we still may talk about it because I wrote that story this week that there's, you know, there's still. The potential for criminal charges in the case, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, but first up, I know we have something, you have something that you're going to talk about with us now that actually did get some legal clarity this week. So There was something uh, of a Pyrrhic victory uh, for a bunch of graffiti artists behind the famous New York City graffiti space known as Five Points. Right. Um, They won a $6.75 million judgment on Monday from the real estate developer who tore down the uh, it was it was called the graffiti mecca, mm-hmm. um, the guy who tore it down in 2014. So um, it, it was this sort of weird law, and and it 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 tore this guy apart. Um, but you know, it doesn't. It's not going to bring the art back. So. so let's rewind a little bit. I mean, we're in New York, so we maybe knew more about yeah. this. But for people listening all around the country, what exactly was Five Points? So it was this huge factory in Long Island City that it, it was from like the turn of the century. Um, Long Island City is in Queens. It's right across the river from uh, Manhattan yeah. for anyone who who doesn't live in New York. Um, and it was it had become over the years since the late '80s, early '90s to the present day, it had become one of the biggest collections of of graffiti and murals and street art in the world. Um, the owner Jerry Wolkov uh, had allowed artists to paint on the building first as this place called Fun Factory, and then later as Five points. It was curated by a guy named Jonathan Cohen, who sort of orchestrated, you know, who could paint where. He he 
there was like a process for being allowed to paint on the building legally. So mm-hmm. it was this very like it, it wasn't like people were going there and just tagging it. It was right. And it was a very New York thing where graffiti is a full art form here right. and in many right. big cities. So, yeah. But so but famous. but in like the roots of it, it, it wasn't fully formalized the way that it the way that it w- was working. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a handshake deal that, that Wolkov allowed him to do it. And, and now this is in dispute because we're talking about a lawsuit. But. Wolkov apparently told him that that it was eventually gonna. I may eventually use the building for something else. Mm-hmm. So that came to pass. Um, in I think it was 2011 or 2012, Wolkov started seeking permits to build high rise condos on the place. 2013, he eventually announced it. Um, so Cohen, the guy who had been orchestrating Five Points, filed a lawsuit to prevent Wolkov from tearing the building down. As we've already demonstrated, there's a very unique set of facts here. So let's talk about the legal underpinnings here. What, like, what, yeah. what, what kind of law is in play that says you can't tear down your own, like, you know, your own graffiti on on property you own or something? It's, it's very weird, and okay. that, that's that's what makes this lawsuit interesting, right? Because it, it gets to this sort of weird tension that you don't see a whole lot in U.S. law, like mm-hmm. this idea of the rights of the artist versus the rights of the property. Because well, it's such pro- a specific arrangement, as you right, said. So, right. Yeah. So in 1990, Congress passed this weird amendment to the Copyright Act. It's not really copyright law. It's not really intellectual property law. It's it's the law was called the Visual Artists Rights Act. Mm-hmm. It's this it's unusual because it imparts what are known as moral rights. And that that goes beyond, you know, copyrights give you uh, economic rights with your work. You can yeah. charge for it and, and all sorts of things, but it's generally speaking extinguished when I sell you a copy. Like it's why you're allowed to resell a CD. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the first sale doctrine and there's a little piece of that in there's a little version of that in in any other form of U.S. intellectual property law. The thing here is that this law goes beyond that and says, once you have a copy of a work, I can still prevent you from from destroying it. I can prevent you from mutilating it or doing all sorts of things. Yeah. So, um, what the what VARA, which is the you know the the statute we're talking about here, yeah. um, it it makes it illegal to destroy works quote of recognized stature. Okay, and it it does some other things, but that's really what's at play here. So Cohen sued under this law, claiming the destruction of the building would violate the law. Um, Unfortunately for the artists, the judge overseeing the case in 2013 refused to grant them a temporary restraining order. So almost immediately, Walkov uh, whitewashed every piece of art in the building. Um, and that's sort of important in, in the case. Um, he eventually tore down the building the next year, but but like the day after this TRO Erasing was refused, the art, he erased all the art. But then that makes it a little confusing. Like, why are we even talking about it now? Yeah. If the art was already gone. So they filed that suit seeking a TRO and a preliminary injunction to yeah. stop him from doing this. But once they lost, they continued to to litigate the case. And the judge even warned Walkoff when he denied the TRO, you might still be on the hook here. I just don't think th- the, that the matter is so extraordinary that I need to give you this, this extraordinary remedy. Mm-hmm. So this week, after four more years of litigation, the judge issued a final ruling um, that, that the developer had, in fact, violated Vara when he did this. And what made it really interesting was that he said that that the developer had put himself by by whitewashing the art the way he did mm-hmm. that he had put himself on the hook for way more damages than he would have faced otherwise yeah i mean so that the the thing that stands out in this story is the 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 judge really didn't pull any punches here and, tore them and, apart yeah so he he said that um that the works were clearly the 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 kind of recognized stature that that is required under the law um and that 
And that but, was just because of like the historic place in the community. Well, you, I mean, Five Points was featured in ads. It was featured right. in okay. in TV, in movies, and all sorts of other things. And yes, and in the community. So mm-hmm. it was. It, they, the judge said at one point, "If these works aren't of recognized stature, almost Nothing no works is, would right? be." Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, but what, but what was really interesting was that that he said. By by going in and whitewashing the building immediately, you showed that you did this willfully. Yeah. If you had waited and allowed the artists time to take take them down, or you know, if you had just waited, you and it wasn't like they had gone in immediately to start the construction of the high rises. No, it took they, it took a year before right. they tore the building down. Right. So it seemed um, spiteful. Or, correct. You know, so yeah. well, I mean, the judge called called. Well, yeah. To, <laughs> he said. <laughs> He called it an act of pure pique and revenge for the nerve of the plaintiffs to sue to attempt to prevent the destruction of their art. Well, Judge certainly sounds uh, pretty ticked off, which I think would explain the uh, $6.7 million <laughs> damages award. Yeah. Um, and I know just from t- tracking your coverage here that that wasn't the only sort of incendiary thing he had to say. I think you got another one for us. That's yeah? right. The real, the real power quote was, quote, if not for Wolkoff's insolence, <laughs> these damages would not have been assessed. If he did not destroy five points until he received his permits and demolished it 10 months later, the court would not have found that he acted willfully. Given the degree of difficulty in proving actual damages, a modest amount of statutory damages probably would have been in order. So really just rubbed it in that like yeah. not not only am I finding against you, but the way that you did it, yeah. like the way that you acted led directly to this, to this massive fine you're facing. There you go. So if you're listening to this, there's a probably a better than even chance that you've either taken the bar exam or you're preparing to take the bar exam. And I don't have to tell you that that can come at a tremendous uh, financial burden, just like Mm -hmm. the rest of law school. Real racket. Yeah. Um, But one company is looking to put something of a dent in that structure that we've come to know with a new lawsuit that was filed in New York State court last week. Uh, That suit basically alleges that the bar preparation company known as Barbary, which everybody knows, uh, who is uh, in the legal uh, profession the last couple decades, uh, the the suit basically alleges that Barbary has colluded with some of the nation's top law schools to basically keep other companies out of the test preparation market. Well, this perks up my ears because I definitely (laughs) took a Barbary course at the end of law school to pass my bar exam. So what exactly is the suit about here? The case was filed by a company called LLM Bar Exam, which is basically trying to position itself as a rival to Barbary. They they offer uh, prep courses for people seeking masters of law degrees. Mm-hmm. So they're just trying to take a little part of the Barbary business. Then. Yeah. And Barbary, as you hinted at, Amber, has been the biggest name in this game for, for decades now. And uh, in the suit, uh, LBE alleges basically this this elaborate scheme uh, to that helps Barbary maintain its you know basically chokehold on this market. Um, basically alleges that the company has given direct large donations to some of the top law schools: yeah. Col- Columbia, Harvard, Georgetown, Fordham, Emory, USC. These these are all named as defendants in the suits. Um, so you know beyond these direct donations, LBE also said that Barbary has. Off, gone as far as offering, and this is a quote, personal bribes via gifts and significant financial gain to individual staff, administrators, and uh, faculty of those schools. Well, not, not speaking to the, you know, the facts of this case, but I'm sure Amber can speak to, Barbary does play an outsized role in this market, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think this is going to be shocking to many of our listeners, because like you said, Alex, a lot of them probably also took Barbary courses like I did. But just to give anybody who hasn't done this or doesn't know this company a little insight, yeah. Barbary was on campus uh, at my law school. So you could sign up and secure your spot in a Barbary class when you were a 1L. 
because yeah. you know you're going to get there eventually. So yeah, go yeah. ahead and start paying your installments now. Yeah. Um, and that just shows that they really corner the market fast. People are really scared. You want to sign up for the best test prep Right, you don't want to use the second best one when it's this massively important thing. Because your entire life leads to the bar exam, and I know that sounds really hyperbolic, but you go to school all this time, and if you can't pass that bar exam, you're done. (laughs) Yeah. So so people get really scared. They sign up. And Barbary, for me, just as an example, uh, and this kind of plays in a little bit to what the allegations are here, um, I took my Barbary classes on my law school campus. Mm-hmm. They were in a classroom yes. at my school. And this this is this is at issue in, in LBE's complaint. Um, beyond just the monetary stuff that I just laid out, mm-hmm. there are all kinds of allegations, both by Barbary and, you know, administrators at these various schools that um, you know, they were basically like slandering LBE and any other, you know, test prep that you could offer. Like, oh, this is not as good as Barbary. Sure. Like, Barbary right. is what you need to take. Or they were, you, you know, basically like nudging people to do like, like, like you it, say, there's this whole structure in place. And it raises complicated questions where like, is one objectively better than the other one? And when does it <laughs> yeah. become de- like what? You know what I mean? Like it. So it, it it's. And then it becomes this insular market too, where if Barbary's the one that's right on your college, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, your law school campus, you feel comfortable. You with feel it. comfortable. All of your classmates are going to do the same thing. Yeah. You don't want to be the left out person who doesn't take it. And takes something else. So there could be some changes afoot here. They're 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 asking for they're, they're alleging like fifty million dollars in damages, and it's a newly filed complaint. However, for anyone who's getting kind of excited about the idea of more competition in the uh, bar exam prep, I will say this is not the first time that LBE has fired a legal shot at Barbary. They yeah. they filed a suit in D.C. federal court in 2016, making basically these exact same claims, and uh, that got tossed last year. And the judge in that case basically said um, it's actually not because of some elaborate scheme trying to push you out it was uh basically uh you know administrators told people not to take your course because students were complaining that they weren't good enough right which is kind of a kind of a material difference it is and i mean it's hard to take a shot at the you know biggest best known company for this because they do have good rates of passage for people and so um there are all different kinds of claims that they say mitigate that stuff when the federal judge tossed it last year uh she of course did not get to the state claims which is Mm -hmm. why they filed a new york state court uh, last week, so it's playing out anew, um, and there's obviously we'll we'll see if it gets even any substantive traction this time. Like we said in the meeting, we were talking about this yesterday, though. Uh, this is a this is a fight about two legal test prep companies, but this takes root in all kinds of other professional accreditation things. Whether you're studying to be a CPA or a doctor or anything, and I'm curious to see you know what the what the range of legality is for arrangements right. like this yeah. um and there's a lot of road left to go but it certainly interests me and i think it'll interest uh, a lot of people in the legal community as well It's easy to call an attorney a partner, but it's harder to offer a simple definition for what that word means. After years of aggressive consolidation, many big firm lawyers with partner in their title have little of the kind of authority traditionally associated with partnership. That mutation has opened the door to arguments that those outside full equity partnership should be seen as employees, a key point in several high-profile discrimination cases filed against firms in recent years. Here to discuss this new trend is one of our senior reporters, Andrew Strickler. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Andrew, one of the uh, five-time guests? Uh, yeah, close to that, something. Yeah. Like, like it's I rarefied said. air. It yeah. really is. <laughs> like I said, we got to get him a little blazer with like a crest on it. Black yeah. of some kind. Yeah. Perfect. I, I'll accept. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, set us up here. The thread running through this story is 
what exactly the the title partner means now. It's just not what it used to be. So can you tell us more Let's about that? Let's get really existential. What are we talking about? What does it mean? Well, <laughs> well, you know, back in the day, law firms uh, considered themselves sort of a breed apart. And part of that was that they were true partnerships, mm-hmm. meaning every partner was an owner of the firm, had an ownership stake in the firm, money in the firm. And uh, associates were associates and partners were partners. And that was that. Sure. And that also meant that in those days, partners all made the big decisions, right? That's right. And in a, in a very simple structure like that, if you had 20 or 40 partners, you could get them all together a few times a year. Everybody could make all the decisions for mm-hmm. the whole business. And that would be that. Of course, there were subsets and managers and such. But essentially, every party, you know, one person, one vote. Right. But that's changed. That has changed a lot. Uh, and basically what has happened is that uh, f- law firms, particularly from the mid-1990s, but even more in the 2000s, grew and grew and grew and grew. And the biggest firms were no longer these big regionals, but were these national, international firms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you can't have those meetings anymore where it's 40 people making all the decisions. Absolutely, you can. And you got people speaking six languages to just throw out <laughs> one possible problem in these huge multinationals. Obviously, the business changed, the business model changed, and the title started to change. Mm-hmm. And effectively, the firms started adding uh, and messing around with the uh, two-tier simple partnership model. Partner didn't mean partner anymore. Well, yeah, it depended on the firm. And and that's one thing that's important to know is every firm was doing this in in various, in different ways. Mm -hmm. But the bigger trend was to add uh, mid-level ranks, partners who were you know, quote unquote, non-equity partners mm-hmm. or lower tier partners, uh, you know, uh, shareholders who were not full partners. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, what that meant was a firm trying to create a sort of middle ground for people uh, as a sort of career stopping place. These are people who are, are senior enough to be out of the associate ranks, but not quite ready yeah. for the partnership, a full partnership vote. Uh, and the concept of, of, a, of a non-partner partner and sort of a mid-career stopping point grew and grew and grew depending right. on the firm. And all these different people started being kind of placed or landed there. Uh, and the ranks just grew and grew and grew. And so all over big, big Law now, you have these massive firms that have very, very large non-equity income partner Ranks. And I, a lot I have them. to imagine that's also been driven by, as you add these folks, the people who are equity partners don't want to dilute the money that they're making by bringing more people in. So it concentrates that at the very top. Well, that was a, a big part of it. And, and there's a lot of reasons that firms have, have gone this route. One of them is definitely that. You can't have a profitable partnership and just keep adding partner after partner after right. partner. You also have a situation in which as the firms got bigger and bigger, you had more and more lawyers who were very specialized and they weren't necessarily people who were ever going to run a practice or mm-hmm. have a lot of associates working for them in the kind of law firm leverage model, uh, or simply people who didn't want to take on the added responsibility of working to partner. And so this was a place to kind of land them, income partner, non-equity partner. They have the title, but without the full vote. That makes sense. I remember when I first started covering this stuff, like the legal community, you know, just intuitively you think about 
Like some of these these law firms have like dozens of offices and thousands of attorneys. They can't all be like well, partners in the sense that we sit around the boardroom like voting on the major direction of the company or the right. firm in this case. And and I mean we we're bringing it up sort of to talk about some of the some of the the headaches that it's caused here, but it, it does serve a purpose, right? I mean you can't have like you said you can't have just, you can't have a thousand people involved in in the day to day of running a business. That's right. It, it just wasn't practical anymore to have partners, true partners, and everybody else be everybody else. Right. And this uh, also, I mean, it fits in with what other businesses do, too. There's lots and lots of businesses that have essentially a middle management level. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Says the person in this room that's at a middle management level <laughs> at our own company. But the difference absolutely. is they don't hold this vestigial title that's, that's right. linked right. to the days when they were special. That, that it, you know, that it's it's this weird blending of like, we want to we wanna assimilate some of the, the good stuff about corporations, but we want to hold <laughs> on to this idea yes. that we're yeah. like that's, bunch that's of, a bunch of guys sitting around making 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 decisions like this is this is this is beyond as you hinted at bill this is beyond just like a semantic or corporate structure discussion though it's had real impacts and one of the one of the areas that that we've seen that you wrote about um is in so many of these big law gender bias suits that we've seen come up can you just explain for us you know how this distinction we're talking about here matters in that context well it's interesting because this was definitely not one of the consequences that anybody saw coming yeah i wouldn't imagine so yeah i mean for one thing when this all started uh these suits were not being filed there was no (laughs) such thing there was no reason for anybody to be thinking along these Mm -hmm. lines but as we've seen in these suits against uh, Chad Bourne and a couple of others, uh, there are people, uh, partners, non-equity income partners who have um, a pretty good argument going that they were, quote unquote, partners in name only were, and were, in fact, employees. That has obviously a lot of implications for what laws are going to be applied to their cases mm-hmm. about venue, issues of arbitration. That's all very key. Right. Employees are given more protection under the law and and. Right. That's right. And and in the way that um, partnership law works from state to state, it can be pretty fuzzy depending on where it is. And the law firms have found themselves in a position where they intentionally made the lines pretty fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And now in some of these <laughs> cases, the plaintiffs are saying, well, here's what part of what has come from these fuzzy lines. You treated, called me a partner, but I was really an employee. And now in the lawsuit, I should be treated as an employee and have those kind of protections. And that's a classic kind of thing that gets fought about in employment suits all the time. It sure. might not happen a, happen a lot with lawyers, but it happens all the time where someone says, no, I'm not an independent contractor, for yeah. example. Yeah, I'm really an employee. Classification is like yeah. the first a, thing yeah. you got to... Absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of idea that they're working on to try to figure out, can you get these people to be seen as employees with all of the protections as contractors would want in many cases, uh, you know, and on and on. It's it's a big deal. So you mentioned a bunch of these specific cases, and we've talked about them on the show, but could you walk us through one of these situations where this has come up in, in you know, in this idea of whether or not these folks are, are a partner or an employee? Well, it, essentially, it's, it's come up in different forms on in all of the cases. In the uh, Winston and Schron case going on in California, uh, the issue right now is about an arbitration clause that's mm-hmm. in a partnership contract. This is an issue that's also been brought up in other cases. And essentially, the plaintiffs in those cases are saying, we never got a split of profits. We never saw a dollar from the overall profit pool. What better defines a partner in a sure. business yeah. than sharing in the profits and losses? You didn't live up to your end, so I don't have to follow the arbitration agreement. Right. And obviously, the the uh, the response to that is, well, the partnership agreement that you sign never 
promises you a split of promises. Right, it like it wasn't makes, guaranteed. It was, yeah, right, there's no guarantees. It simply says these are available to you. I think we'd all if, like to sign a contract like that. But sure. Yes. If, you know, if the, if the circumstances uh, warrant it, you are in line for this kind of right. thing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously this question is still being hashed out. So it sounds like we've definitely got this going on with the bias suits, but there's probably other problems that have unintentionally arisen from this new structure. Can you tell us about some of those? Well, there's no question that the last few years have been a uh, kind of a rethinking about what it means, uh, why big law firms would want to have, or do they want to have income partners at all? Basically, uh, the ranks have gotten so big and a lot of blame in big firms that have seen their profitability per partner profitability just stall they're pointing at these non-income ranks and saying, you know, we have a lot of lawyers there who don't have an ownership uh, stake in the firm. They're not acting like people who are trying to grow the business in a way that drives up profitability. Right. Essentially, they're there where they are. They're making these pretty good salaries. Some of them are getting bonuses, which are essentially cuts of profits, obviously. Uh, and they're not... Uh, really pulling their weight in terms of the bottom line on the business. They're not acting like the partners that we want to have. Yeah. Uh, and there's just too many of them. Uh, so there have been a number of firms that have actually gone the other direction. They've done away with their uh, non-equity ranks. Baker Hostetler, Aiken Gump, DLL Piper have all moved away from the sort of multi-tiered system and said, you know, it's just not working for us as much as we thought it was going to. And we're, we're going back to a more clear partner associate model. Now, you name checked a bunch of firms there for us that are moving away from what we've come to know about the partnership structure back to like a sort of more modestly scaled thing. With the people you, you discussed this with, um, is there any reason to think that that's a trend that'll take root in the big law community on a wide scale? Or what are, what are we seeing there? Well, it's hard to say in, in terms of the reaction to these gender bias suits, but I right. think it is right to think of it as, as kind of another uh, mark against these income ranks among several others that are being dealt with. At the same time, the firms are still growing. They're still uh, taking on a much more sure. kind of corporate structure. And it, it, it seems almost inevitable that, again, the idea of a law firm as a partnership is just going to continue to erode as big firms do things like hire non-lawyer executives yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, basically structure themselves uh, more under a corporate kind of structure. Law corp. Yeah, law corp. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really happened already, but the law, law firms are slow to change and they are very, I think, reluctant to do away with the idea, sort of the, the, the nomenclature, even the marketing aspect yeah. of partner versus associate. I mean, that's part of what drove uh, this whole non-income partner trend as well, is that they wanted to have a lot more people who could say to their clients, <laughs> yeah. I'm a partner. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I mean, it big law. Weight, no, for yeah. Sure. It, yeah. It's still, yeah, it still carries weight. And, uh, you know, and the partners don't really care. Well, does that mean you're going to get some cut of profits at the end of the year or you get some voting power? They don't care. They can say, well, I have a partner working on my case and I'm paying big bucks for it. So yeah. there we go. Well, there you go. I think you've given the, the uh, partners listening a lot to think about. So uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for walking us through it, man. Appreciate it. You're welcome. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and this week we're talking about Taylor Swift. And we're going back to the to the 
disputed music corner, which I love. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. finally glad we're in a disputed music corner where I actually like Taylor Swift, so I won't be upset to be yeah. talking about her this yeah. time. Well, Taylor Swift gets sued for stuff like this a lot. Okay. Like, I remember a couple years ago, I got retweeted 2,000 times over that quote where the judge- Not like, to brag, 2,000 parties over here. <laughs> <laughs> so Taylor Swift was sued by the songwriters that claimed that she stole Shake It Off which we all know, yeah, um, stole the the operative chorus from it um, from a very pretty obscure 2001 song by a band called 3LW. I mean, I mean, it depends on who you ask. That song, what what it was, what was the name of that song? Play is gonna play. Play is gonna play by 3LW, and it sounds very 2001. That was a bop though at that time. That <laughs> all right. Was, yeah. Well, so do we want to listen to these songs? We do. I think so that's good. Uh, let's first play. We all know the Taylor Swift song, but let's play the chorus just for that. a primer here. Yeah. I feel better already. Yeah. I mean, this isn't that meatloaf it's segment, a, guys. It's just a meat and I potatoes like pop song right yeah. there. Jam. There you go. Yeah. So then we had the other one, uh, Play Is Gonna Play by 3LW, which shares some of the same words. Take a listen. With me and you. I'm glad you finished that it's out. It's like I'm on a middle it's school great. dance floor. Love that okay. song. It's wild. I mean, that's a really, it's the kind of pop song we all remember. They were kind of ubiquitous. Yep. But is it really enough that they just well, yeah. I mean, the players? If you're, if you're scoring at home, they both say players are going to play and haters are going to hate. But right. as you may remember, those were pretty common things to say back in uh, back in the early 2000s. And uh, sh- unshockingly, that factored into a ruling this week uh, saying that, no, she can't. She cannot be sued for those things. Uh, a judge ruled, dismissed the case, but with one leave to amend. So okay. said, and it was very much like, like you can refile this if you would like to uh, if pay your lawyers more. But like, it's on its last legs. The, 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 I don't see much of a way that you can that you could correct the things that I found. So the judge said, basically, to put it into layman's terms. You can't claim a copyright to these words. Like, yes, you share some words with it, but those words aren't the kind of creative expression that the founders <laughs> had in mind. Right, when they're they... just like too common. They're well, they're too they're too general, no, too brief, and... unoriginal, and uncreative to warrant protection. Was well, actually the wording. Yeah. Well, that's the go. thing. I mean, it, there are some money quotes which we'll get to yeah. in, in short order yeah. here. But I mean, this is your area, Bill. Can you copyright a tautology? I mean, players are going to play. Well, and haters there's... are going to hate. This is in their nature. We How discuss... many times have we all said that? <laughs> players are going to play. Haters d- are going to hate. We discussed this a lot uh, off the air, but there are some <laughs> really, really good quotes. This here. opinion so, rules. So, quote. The concept of actors acting in accordance with their essential nature is not at all creative. Awesome. Semicolon. It is banal. <laughs> in the early 2000s, popular culture was adequately suffused with the concepts of players and haters to render the phrases play is gonna play and haters gonna hate standing on their own no more creative than, quote, runners gonna run, drummers gonna drum, or swimmers gonna swim. That's what I'm saying. That is one of my favorite quotes of this the year is, so far. That's what I'm saying. It's like, amazing. Can you like can you copyright someone just saying a thing that a thing does? You know, I don't. It, it, no. it seems. I mean, <laughs> I mean, for our purposes, pretty re- easy answer. Reporters are gonna report. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. So yeah, I mean the the. The legal case is pretty open and shut here, but that doesn't mean the judge didn't have fun, uh, you know, getting into it. This, Dunk, dunked on him. This this last one, this last one is just really great. And stay with me. A little bit of a long quote, but it'll it'll get us out of here on a on a, on a nice note. 
It is hardly surprising that plaintiffs, hoping to convey the notion that one should persist regardless of others' thoughts or actions, focused on both players playing and haters hating when numerous recent pop songs had each addressed the subject of players, haters, and player haters, albeit to convey different messages than the plaintiffs were trying to convey. So n- nothing about shot callers or ballers there, um, yeah. but you know, in they the easily of, could have been included. in the interest of judicial economy, I think maybe that was wise. All right, well, I think it makes sense for us to maybe, maybe, maybe play the song one more. Play can, us can out. We, I, I'm trying to look over the producers if we're uh, we're allowed to play the song one more time, but uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Which song? Well, I mean, do we want to? I mean, to, I mean, I think it's pretty clear what we're gonna do. Taylor Swift. Oh. I was I was in the three LW camp. I was also I love in the three LW. I love a throwback. You guys jam. are always overruling me about music. Fine, three LW. Hit it. It was a great show today, guys. Thanks for being with me. Thanks, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Another one in the books. Appreciate it. And also thanks to our producers, Keller Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guest this week, Andrew Strickler. Our contributing reporters, Brian Koenig and Melissa Daniels. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week. <laughs>